Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. For NASDAQ's Adina Friedman, this is success. Well, have I achieved everything that I could have achieved with the skills that I have? Have I brought my best self to the job every single day? And do I treat every day as day one? Because that, to me, is the most important thing that I can do for the success of the company. From Business Insider, I'm Rich Filoni. Adina Friedman has the top job at NASDAQ, one of the world's biggest stock exchanges. She first joined the company in 1993, when she came on board as an intern. And she's worked there for all but three years of her professional career. When Friedman became the first female CEO of a global stock exchange, she got tired of being asked about her gender in interviews. But then she realized she could leverage it at NASDAQ by helping other women make it into the C-suite. It's how her mom inspired her in the first place. My mom really has been my hero because she grew up in a world where, you know, being a stay-at-home mom was kind of the very much the path of choice. And she was a stay-at-home mom and she was awesome at it. But when I was nine, she realized that she really wanted to have a career of her own and she had a real desire to become a lawyer. Her dad was a lawyer and I think she really had a great respect for what he did. And so she went back to law school and then became a lawyer, a states and trust lawyer, and then became the first woman partner in her firm. And just watching her progress and really transform her own life into something that was just so meaningful for her uh, was really, really important for me to see. And I think that's why she became my hero. Did that change your relationship with her as well? She was amazing because she still was there to make dinner most nights, although my dad did start making dinner a couple nights a week, which was really <laughs> cool, too. It kind of He really changed some of his work habits so that he could be around. They were never kind of overbearing parents in any regard at all, but it also forced me to be a little more independent as I got older and became a teenager, which I think was actually good for me. And so it changed the relationship just a little bit, but she was always there when I needed her, always. And your dad, he was CIO at T.R. Price. That's right. Did that influence you wanting to get into finance? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So both my my brother and I are both in finance. And part of it was because he would bring us to the office and we did get to hang out there and get to see what people did. And he made the work environment seem not, I mean, fun, really. Actually, we had a ton of fun. (laughs) uh, And then people were really, really nice about giving me things to do and making me feel useful. And so I got to see what it was like to, to be part of that environment. And they would teach us about investments. We would talk about investments 
students at home and just try to understand what it all meant. And so, so you'd be a kid talking about finance stuff? Well, he, I, would, I was very curious about what he did. Mm-hmm. And so understanding how he looked at fundamentals, how he would make investment decisions, what was important to him. Why was he going to China in the 80s? You know, why would he, he traveled all over the world. So what was he learning? What was he trying to understand? He would read every paper. So what was he trying to get out of the papers? Those are the kind of questions that I would ask as he, as I got older and, and had a better understanding of what he did. And I think that having that and understanding it, at least at a surface level, made it so it wasn't this big mystery. It was something I could understand. And even though when I was growing up, I wanted to be an astronaut and I wanted to go into international relations and other things, by the time I had matured into saying, well, what is it that I really find interesting? Finance really was at the top of my list. Yeah. So you were considering going to D.C., right? Yeah. So I I had grown up in Baltimore and D.C. was always the big city (laughs) down the street and always to me was the center of power and you could feel it. You'd go there and you'd just feel these you know, the history of the country. You'd feel the power structure that was there. And so I kind of really thought that that was where I wanted to go. And so I did experience it. I went onto the Hill and I had a great experience working for a congressman and then a senator. And it was great. But at the, at the end of the day, I realized that I wanted to be in a place where I could have more immediate impact. And so business was ultimately the path I chose. So you joined NASDAQ in 93. You started as an intern. Um, At the commencement speech that you gave last year at your alma mater, uh, Vanderbilt's Business School, you told this story about how when you were 28, you took on a project that like basically changed how you saw your career. Could you explain what that was? Sure. Yeah. I when I was 28, I became in charge of a product called the Mutual Fund Quotation Service. And it was a really small, like little mini business within NASDAQ. It was a small product that hadn't really been revamped for a long time. And since it was kind of a pretty standard service, it really hadn't been touched for probably 10 years or more by the time I took it. And I had written a business plan about it a couple of years earlier saying, well, these are the things we could do to maximize the opportunity of the business. And they said, OK, well, here you go. Was this a project that it was like more senior leaders wouldn't want to touch it? They were like, oh, just give it to you well, because it was you were very much, Yeah. I mean, it was very much kind of an ancillary product. It wasn't central to trading. And they kind of said, well, you know, she's she's a young person. Let's try it, see what what she can do with it, essentially. And they did give me complete autonomy to do with it what I could. The most important thing was to find a technology team. And there was a gentleman in the technology organization who I really came to respect and admire. And um, he said, if you give me enough time and money, I can do anything for you. And then once I kind of proved myself that I wasn't just this 28-year-old person who didn't know what she was doing. I was actually someone who could really help him get the resources he needed. We actually formed a great partnership. What do you want a universal takeaway to be from this story when you told it? Well, the first thing is uh, take those opportunities when they're given to you, right? I was offered this opportunity and then make the even most of it. Even if it looks it. bad in the first right. place. Right. I mean, even yeah. though it's like this product that really no one really thought much about, um, it was an opportunity for me to have a lot more autonomy. By taking something that people didn't care as much about, it, it actually makes it so you can have a lot more uh, impact on it um, and you can have a lot more autonomy. The second thing is find those people who are going to help you. Don't assume you're going to do it yourself. You have to have those people, those experts around you who are better at their jobs than you are um, to help you find success. There's a profile of you in uh, Vanderbilt Magazine and they interviewed some of your former classmates and they basically described you as kind of being very uh, 
confident and intense without being like ruthless or aggressive. How do you see yourself? I thought that was actually interesting because I thought it was very interesting. I was I was as interested in reading what they had to say as anyone else. I think that the the one thing that I I learned early in my time at Vanderbilt was if I I always chose to be the editor of any group project. So that was the one thing that they probably saw, which was um, anytime I was in a group, I said, I'll be the editor, which means you actually end up doing a lot of extra work, but you want the work product to be consistent. You want it to be consistently written. You want it to have consistent ideas throughout. And so there's extra work, but honestly, it gave me the ability to kind of control the outcome a little bit better. I mean, and I think people luckily would trust me that I was going to do a good job at it. And so I think that probably manifested itself in me being considered kind of driven. (laughs) Could you explain this meeting tactic that you have called, was it light bulb versus mandate? Yeah. Uh, And it was actually Brad, our CIO's idea to to bring that into the room because the former style within NASDAQ was very much a command and control style, which meant that, you know, the leader, once they said something, it would all, it happened, right? And so it was before I became CEO and I started realizing that every time I said something, it, everything just happened, even if it was just an idea, right? So a light bulb is it just thrown an idea on the table. Let's debate it, discuss it. Let's get other opinions in the room. I'm just, a, in a way, kind of thinking of me as a peer in the room, all thinking together. But then in those times when it becomes a mandate, meaning, okay, it's decision time, or there are certain things I just say, look, we have to do it this way, then I say this is a mandate. And I use that pretty rarely, you know, but it's an important moment when either we've all coalesced around a decision and we made a mandate, or there's certain things that I just feel like have to be done a certain way. But most of the time, you kind of bring those light bulbs into the room and you hopefully come to a better decision as a result. Do you think that that's changed your relationship with your employees? I do think that it makes it so it's a more open environment. So it's there's a collaboration element to it, and that's the light bulb phase. And then there's the command element to it, meaning, okay, now it's time to act. Let's go, let's go down the road. Let's make decisions based on facts, based on analysis. But once the decision's made, we all have to march down the road the right way. So you went to an all-girls school until college. How did that prepare you for the world that you're in now? Well, definitely an all-girls environment for me, and it's different for everyone, but it certainly gave me an enormous amount of confidence to stand up for myself, to voice my opinion, to ask questions. I was named most inquisitive in my high school, which I'm not so <laughs> sure was actually a compliment, but um, but it was something where I never felt at all hesitant to ask questions in class. And then I got to college. And I was always the first one to raise my hand or whatever. I was always asking questions. And I realized that in many cases, I was actually the only girl in the class asking questions. I think it didn't dawn on me of how important that was until I got to college into a co-ed environment. And I had that confidence to be able to be, you know, a person in the room like everyone else to ask questions and answer questions. And I realized that it gave me an enormous amount of confidence. I didn't appreciate the all-girls education until I left. And then I looked back and said, wow, that really did shape me in a way that I'm really proud of. So even today, you're you're looking at its influence? Yeah, I think so. And so I, I it's also interesting because it is a co-ed world, though. And so I was very fortunate because I had an older brother. And I think that helped also in terms of, frankly, creating a little balance and allowing me to understand how to interact in a co-ed world as well. But it is something for me personally made a difference. Yeah. It's funny. I went to an all-boys school and it was just like incredibly competitive 
Um, yeah, and I think that that's probably carried over with me. Yeah, yeah, and my brother went to an all boys school, and yeah. it was incredibly competitive. <laughs> <laughs> so, and not, I mean, the girls' school is pretty darn competitive too. But it was it, but it still was competitive in the sphere and all, of being. Um, you know, you always were kind of stacking yourself up against other girls, which I think is is an important part of it too. I also really loved math and science, and the math in particular. I was I really did love math, and I think that. I feel like that was probably an area where I particularly excelled because I was in all-girls atmosphere. When you became CEO of NASDAQ last year, there were a lot of profiles that were focusing almost exclusively on the fact that you were the first woman in charge of a global stock exchange and one of the few female leaders on Wall Street. Did that get annoying, seeing profiles seem to focus almost entirely on that? Um, I would have to say I wasn't surprised because it is new. Uh, I also was very clear that I don't really want to be remembered as a woman CEO. I want to be remembered as you know a great CEO, and I'm hoping that I'll be able to prove myself as someone who warrants you know that that legacy. So it wasn't something that I tried to focus on, but it was kind of inevitable. Um, I think also what I really underestimated was the impact it had on some of the younger women inside of NASDAQ and younger women in the industry. So when I go out and talk to people now, I have younger women come up and tell me you know, how important that was for them to see that there's a path all the way to the top. And I just didn't realize that that was, I didn't understand that going into the role, that that was going to be part of what this meant to the community around me. And I'm, it makes me really proud. So it makes me feel and also humbled, frankly. So would those conversations kind of change how you saw your role yourself? No, other than, it, you know, frankly, it just puts a little more pressure on myself to do really well. <laughs> <laughs> so there there have been some things that you've embraced, like the Parity Pledge that mm-hmm. NASDAQ wrote. Could you explain what that is? Yeah. So there was an organization called the Parity Pledge, which is a nonprofit organization that looked at the um, the Mooney Rule, I think it's called, um, in football. The Rooney Rule. The Rooney Rule, yeah, in football. But in this case, what they were asking for is for companies to sign up and say, I'm willing to interview one female candidate for every role at the VP level or above. And frankly, believe it or not, that's just not the standard practice today. Uh, it's the you know recruiting firms that you work with don't always provide you those candidates, especially if you don't ask outright. And and internally, you also realize that as you go up the chain, you're finding that it's not as straightforward as you'd think it would be. So. I asked the entire our leadership team. I said, "We're not just going to do this willy nilly. Is everyone ready to to commit to this?" And they all said yes. And in fact, we did have a recruiting going on at that time, and we didn't have any women candidates. We added a woman candidate, and we chose her because she honestly was by far the best candidate. So, you know, it does make you realize that if you force that just into the interviewing process, it allows you to open your mind and it allows you to open up to probably some really great candidates that you didn't realize. Do you think that the parity pledge, that this is a way to finally change the culture of Wall Street? You do want to make sure that you have a diverse organization because, frankly, I think there's tons of evidence out there that says that it will be ultimately a better performing organization. And if you recognize that up front, then all you have to do is create those practices that make it so that it perpetuates itself. And so now we have some, I mean, amazing women leaders, in, particularly in our tech organization, that then open it up to other women realizing this would be a good place to work because they can see women in leadership in those roles. And it frankly has, I think, uh, an effect all the way down the organization. 
And in terms of taking the CEO role, so you were a CFO, you were a COO. When you took the role of CEO, how did that feel different? What was your first day like? Well, the first thing I would say is Bob Greifeld, our, the former CEO, did a spectacular job of transitioning the role. And, and I really would say it's like a textbook of how to do it well. Because we were together for three years as president and then COO. And we worked very closely together to give me the autonomy that I needed to be successful in my role, but also to prepare me for the next role. He also allowed me to make some leadership changes in the organization in those years so that by the time I became CEO, I didn't suddenly have to make a lot of decisions at the leadership level. In fact, I had So there was a transition phase? It was a very good transition phase. So that, that first day was big day, but it wasn't a day where I suddenly had to make a bunch of changes on day one. I walked right into the role. The difference really is is how you manage your time. There are just so many pulls on your time when you become the CEO, because not only do you have the businesses and your clients, which really is where you focus when you're the COO or president, but you have the investors and you have Washington or you know government organizations and other stakeholders, and then you have the media and you have you know just a lot of other other constituents that you have to start to to manage, and so it means that you have to really focus a lot on time management. So that's probably the biggest change of becoming CEO. I interviewed Bob a couple of years ago, and he was saying to this note of transition that leaders at Nasdaq always know what their succession plan is going to be? Is that still a policy? Yeah, we do succession planning every year. And that's frankly a very important aspect of of the board. So we present it to the board every year. And we think a lot about succession planning as part of the hiring decisions, as we think about development plans, as we do development um, training for people. And it's very much part of the conversation. I, I, and it's not just a once a year exercise. I actually have those conversations throughout the year with our key leaders. Is you know, This company is bigger than one person. So you have to make sure that you're always thinking about how do you ma- create a sustainable organization for yourself. Your predecessor, Bob Greifeld, he was saying how when he took NASDAQ, uh, it was kind of a mess at first, but then he transformed it and kind of reinvented it as a tech company. Do you have uh, kind of a mission yourself on some things you want to change or take into a, a next step? He definitely came into the organization at a time at a critical juncture where it was kind of having an identity crisis in terms of it being very important equities market in the United States, but going through a lot of regulatory change that it hadn't been able to acclimate well to. He turned it into a very functional and very successful equities market, and then he was able to grow it to being multi-asset class and multinational, and then looking at technology as our core differentiator and taking that and getting the market tech business into a state where we really are a differentiated supplier. So he did a spectacular job. I think my job now is to take all that strength, because he really handed over a company that is in a very strong position, but to find new ways to grow and expand our business with technology being our core. So there have been some recent reports that uh, the New York Stock Exchange's parent company, ICE, has been at least looking into a Bitcoin trading platform, maybe working on it. Is there any chance that uh, NASDAQ would be behind the curve on that? So we've made a conscious decision to serve as a technology partner to the crypto markets that exist today to help new crypto markets form and evolve through our technology. 
as well as to make it so that they really start to focus on surveillance and monitoring their markets to make sure that it's a fair environment. So our technology, our smart surveillance technology, is being used by more than one exchange, including Gemini. And our market technology, our trading and clearing technologies are being used by multiple exchanges as well in the crypto space. And that's been our first effort to make sure that we're serving the market appropriately with our technology. The decision for NASDAQ to become a market itself Our view is that being the first mover is not necessarily the role that we want to play. So we've made a conscious decision not to be a first mover in that market. We have been evaluating the potential to launch a future, but we really want to make sure that if we do it, that we it's based on exchanges where the price formation of those exchanges can be relied upon, and, and therefore they're well surveilled and they've got reliable technology. So those are the, some of the things that we've considered as, as we start to consider whether or not to launch a future, an index with the future. Um, the second is looking more holistically at becoming an exchange itself. And I would say that the markets today are there's in a very early stage. I think that there it's not a regulated environment. And so today, NASDAQ believes that our, we're better served by being a technology provider to the exchanges than by trying to launch one ourselves. So former New York Stock Exchange president Tom Farley, who served from 2013 to this past May, uh, he was recently saying that NASDAQ, which has built a reputation as an exchange for tech companies, you have Apple, Facebook, Google, he was arguing that, oh, NASDAQ, they've outlived that. It's not true anymore. Um, and it would drive him crazy to hear that. How do you reply to him? Well, first of all, I actually agree that we are a much more diversified market than just a technology market. So I was actually pleased to see them say that we're, <laughs> we're a much more evolved market than tech. Today, we are a diversified exchange. Uh, last year, Pepsi switched from the New York Stock Exchange to NASDAQ after 100 years of listing on the New York Stock Exchange. And they did that because we're not just a technology exchange. We actually are an exchange where innovators of all types come and they want to be a part of an ecosystem that supports that innovation and that ability to continue to drive to the future. But our heritage in tech is something that we will always be thrilled to have. Yeah. So on that note, he was saying that when he was running the New York Stock Exchange that he saw its relationship with NASDAQ, like the Hatfield and McCoys, like there was like some blood feud that he was cognizant of every day. Like he had respect, but there was a bitter rivalry that he had to go out and, and attack. How do you see it? I mean, certainly it's a, it's a very competitive situation and uh, every company has the option to choose one one exchange or another. And it is every we, we do compete for every IPO. But we tend to really focus on all of the things that we need to do to make it a great experience for our listed companies. And at the end of the day, that's what's going to make us win, not so much you know looking at the at the person next door. Yeah. So on a, on a separate note, but kind of related in terms of competition, you're a black belt in Taekwondo. <laughs> How did you get into that? Well, I got into it because my kids were into it. And then my husband started doing it. And I sat there and was watching the classes thinking, why am I sitting here watching? Why don't I go do it too? Yeah. And um, and so we, we all started doing Taekwondo. And I really like it because it teaches self-reliance. It's not a lot looking at the, your neighbor and deciding whether you're better than them. It's all about looking at yourself and being the best that you can be. And to me, that is, I just think those are life lessons that I'm really happy that my kids have heard that and gotten that instilled in them. But I would also argue that it's very relevant in business, too. How? 
So you're focusing on yourself and being your best self. And usually that means that you're serving your customers. So you're focusing on your mission and you're dedicated to achieving that mission. And that mission is client oriented. Then you will have success. And it doesn't really matter what those companies next to you are doing as long as you know that you've got the, fo- the right focus and the right execution and the right, the right relationships with your customers. And I think that we are really evolving to this client-oriented company that makes sure that we're thinking about our clients' needs today and over the next 10 years. Like, wh- how are they going to change? And if we can stay focused on that and not necessarily get too wrapped up in the competitive landscape, I think we can be our best self. And I think those are the types of lessons that I have to say I have learned in Taekwondo. So you've got a Taekwondo mentality, not the Hatfields and McCoys. <laughs> I think that's right. So I like that. It's a, it's, a, it's a black belt mentality for sure. Yeah. What would you say has been the biggest challenge that you've overcome? Um, I think that making sure that you don't hold yourself back. So w- there was a moment, and it was really when the kids were young, where there is an easier road to take than being a working mother. Um, however, I think that, frankly, at the end of the day, I'm a better mother from the fact that I did work. My husband and I, I should say, together were able to find the right balance. My children have relationships with both of us that are deep and important and um, and I have definitely sustainable. It was hard, and it was there were moments when I felt overwhelmed, but there were two things that kept me going. One was my husband, who was always encouraging me and saying, Adina, if you don't continue to work, you'll probably go do a whole bunch of volunteer work and you'll be just as stressed out. <laughs> so it's just one of those things where I'm a driven person. So I'm going to be driven either, at the, at, you know, kind of in my career, I'm going to be driven in other ways. So kind of keep going. You're going to be great. The second was my mom. And she was very good in saying, you know, Adina, you are a driven person. And I can tell you that from my own experience of going from being a stay-at-home mom to being a working mom, that at the end of the day, you can do both and you can do it both successfully. And so both of those people were really, really important to me and getting me through those really challenging years where, you know, you could decide that it's just too much. Um, Beyond that, once I was able to get through that and my husband and I found a great balance together, I've been, you know, it's been um, a pretty smooth process from there. And how do you personally define success? Well, I always look at home first, right? So to me, having a family, a happy family, well-adjusted kids, kids that are ready to face their own challenges in life and that they're ready for any next step that comes their way, to me, is the most important thing that any person can do. Then I look at my profession and I say, well, have I achieved everything that I could have achieved with the skills that I have? Have I brought my best self to the job every single day? And do I treat every day as day one? Because that, to me, is the most important thing that I can do for the success of the company. And so those are the things I ask myself, frankly, every day um, to make sure that I'm bringing my best self to my, to my role every day. Yeah, so it's trying to imagine that first day every day? It is because I think that I've always said that complacency is the killer of every great company. And the only way to overcome complacency is always to wake up every day and say, what am I going to do to further the success of this company today? 
not next week or next month, but today. Um, and if and if everyone in the company come, wakes up every day and says, what am I going to do? What am I going to bring to the table that makes this company even more successful today? It makes it so that you've got, um, you've got the company that is always looking for change. They're always listening to their customers. They're always finding new ways to do things. And they're always innovating. And that is, at the end of the day, what's going to be successful. That's what's going to drive Nasdaq success. What advice would you give to someone who wants to have a career like yours? Well, the first thing is take those opportunities when they're given to you, because oftentimes they are offered up, and it's a matter of you realizing that even if it feels overwhelming, as I just talked about a minute ago, you can do it. And think about how to say yes, as opposed to why to say, why to say no. Um, so I think that if you say yes to your opportunities early on in your career, and you think about also having some level of goals as you go through your career, they can change. But at least always looking forward and saying, what would I want to do next? I think that it really helps drive you and it helps keep you focused. Um, But it also opens you up to opportunities that you may not have realized were there. Well, thank you so much, Adina. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to This is Success from Business Insider. We have one more inside scoop about Adina Friedman to share with you. But first, our show is produced by Anna Mazarakis and Sarah Wyman. Dan Bobkoff is our executive producer, and I'm Rich Filoni. If you like our show, there's something you can do to really help us out. Take just a second and give us a rating. And leave us a review. Let us know what you think about this episode and if you have any other suggestions. It helps new people find the series, which lets us keep making great episodes for you. Before you go, we ask Friedman to tell us a fun fact about herself, something most people probably don't know. I like to collect four-leaf clovers. So um, I I have this thing about when my when my when my son was playing baseball as a parent, and you're at a doubleheader, you're sitting there on a baseball field for like eight hours, and he was a pitcher, so he didn't know actually always play every game, and you inevitably look down on the grass. <laughs> and uh, a friend of mine got me into finding four-leaf clovers, and it's like treasure hunting. And so I love finding four-leaf clovers. So I do have to say that's one of my favorite kind of ways to – it's peaceful, it's fun, it's like treasure hunting. And uh, so that's something that I do that I don't usually talk about. <laughs> we'll be back next week with Caroline Hirsch, the industry icon behind the legendary New York comedy club Caroline's and the New York Comedy Festival. She's discovered and developed talent like Jerry Seinfeld, John Stewart, and Michelle Wolf. But when she was first starting out, she had zero management experience. So she had to lean on a different set of skills. I always trust my own instinct. I really do. As I get older and older, my instinct's better than anybody else's. (laughs) You learn. You learn never to doubt yourself. This is Success is a production of Insider Audio. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.